This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good early evening and late afternoon, dear listeners. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you're listening to the Sunday Twilight Show with Maud. It is 5 p.m. on Sunday, the 7th of May, 2023. You can join me using the chat function. Today, we discussed a topic which is masculinity in education. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome, dear listeners. Good afternoon, and I hope you had a very nice weekend so far. The sun is shining, so all is well. This is my 36th radio show as your hostess, and I'm delighted to share this experience in your company. But first, I have to introduce myself for any potential new listener. I am Maud, a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. I have been living in the United Kingdom since 2008. I'm a professional educator. I work in a secondary state school in North London, where I teach languages and humanities. I teach French, Spanish, history and geography. I also have experience as a teacher in the charity sector. You can follow me on Twitter at profprofmfl all views are my own. So today I would like to focus on one topic that I am not a specialist of, but it is very relevant to me as an educator and in my daily working life and also at home because I am a parent of a boy. So the podcast and discussion will both be on the topic of masculinity in education. This is mostly relevant to parents who have children of both genders, maybe in particular of boys. People work in the education sector, students of both genders, and the curious and savvy who want to know what the next generation is being taught in schools. So first, it is important to start with the roots of the words we use and we're going to look into the term masculinity. So what does masculinity mean? So this echoes another podcast I did previously on femininity and feminism in education. We are examining the other side of the coin today, and this is masculinity. Masculinity means the qualities or attributes that are regarded as characteristic of men or boys. So the qualities that are attributed to boys or men at a particular time, place, and era. I'm sure that the masculinity attributes attributed to boys were different in prehistoric times and different at um, Tudor times, and they're very different from First World War times and in 2023. Now, 
there are some traditional biased gender stereotypes that are associated with masculinity attributes. They are the cliches that we are familiar with. I would say they represent a 19th century vision of masculinity. As such, they are a social construct. As I said, they might be very different depending on which country we live in and which era we live in. But let me make you a quick list of the stereotypes of masculinity in Western Europe. They might not be valid anymore. Some are still seen as being valid. So I'm going to just make you a quick list. You can see if you think they're still appropriate to describe attributes of male, men and boys. So we have a list of adjectives. Aggressive, independent, not easily influenced, dominant, active, worldly, not easily hurt emotionally, decisive, not talkative, tough, less sensitive to others' feelings, not very desirous of security, rarely cries, logical, Analytical, cruel, blunt, not nurturing. So this is a list of gender stereotypes attributed to men. So already, I'm sure you can react to this list and you might know many, many men who do not follow these traditional gender stereotypes. So we are constantly challenging these old-fashioned stereotypes, saying that in media, on social media, and in mass pop culture, in films and series, we do still see these stereotypes being broadcast. It is important to know that as, ed as educators, we aim, we strive to be uh, gender fluid in our approach, and to avoid biases and any prejudices. We are human beings though, so it does happen that we are biased. It can be unconscious or it can be still conscious as well. But any educators in the UK will endeavor to try not to project too many biases onto their students. Now, when we look at the literature around educating boys, the challenges, uh, that it requires and creates, we have a wide spectrum of views, opinions, and many different, sometimes contradictory advice given on how to educate boys in the UK. Some practitioners will recommend teachers should teach distinctively to boys, which means that they should have different strategies for boys and girls. In some schools, this led to separating boys and girls in certain subjects. For instance, I know of two local schools where I'm based in North London that have elected to teach girls science separately from the boys. The reasoning is that girls were often feeling less confident and were not inclined to elect some subjects such as STEM subject, science, uh, computing and uh, technologies. So 
they have created lessons only for girls and they try to use different strategies. I'm quite interested in this. However, I could not find any data online to see what the results of this separate teaching were. So I'm very interested. And if you know anyone who has trialed teaching girls and boys separately in mixed schools, just to see if the teaching improves, please let me know if you have any evidence or data. So, as I said, some practitioners advise separating boys and girls for very specific reasons and for very specific subjects. Others simply advocate teaching children the same, the same way, but in a very inclusive way, and teaching children how to be the best version of themselves. And in that spectrum of views and opinions, we go from um, very gender-conscious teaching to a very liberal way of teaching with very few restrictions imposed by teachers or parents and very few perceptions and expectations as far as gender is concerned. Now, I am choosing to study the issue of masculinity today because I think it is very important to see what happens in schools. In my current school, which I join quite late, they had a very, very different experience of teaching because for almost 20 years, it was a Catholic girls school. And then it became an academy and it was open to boys. So we had transition years um, before 2018 and now it is fully mixed. All the students are mixed, boys and girls. Uh, we have also a few non-binary students and we can ask teachers who have been through that transition. They were in obviously a religious faith school for girls and they went into a non-selective, um, non-religious academy for both genders. And when I ask the teachers, how was the change? They, are, they have all noticed a very, very different atmosphere in the school. It was quieter, it was less noisy and uh, there was less behavior issues or a different type of behavior issues. Um, there was maybe less um, aggression generally, although there was still bullying and girls having issues with friendship. So there has been a difference, noticeable difference in the way the school has to operate as far as behavior is concerned, because we now have both genders in the school. So it was interesting to ask the teachers. Now, when I look at uh, publications concerning education, what I notice is that there is a worry about masculinity in education. And the worry is that these stereotypes, these old school 19th century stereotypes that I described earlier, have, have still a very predominant influence on minds and they create a lot of issues in our schools. If you want to know more about this, the issue of, we call it uh, hyper-masculinity in schools or toxic masculinity, you can watch a TED talk on YouTube. It is uh, Robert Salem, S-A-L-E-M. He is an American Lebanese uh, educator and he describes all the consequences of having these 
biased, stereotype vision of masculinity pervading our schools currently. Um, it is quite an important TED talk, so if you have the chance, it's about 20 minutes, please check it out. Now, the term masculinity is a positive term. It is um, about praising boys for who they are and so that they can achieve the best of who they are, which is fine. Now, if we ask students to describe what's a good man, the answers will usually circle around the idea of someone who is responsible, someone who is professional, someone who is caring, someone who is polite, someone who is helpful, strong, attentive, and gentle. So that's a definition given by most students of all ages for a good man. But now, if we tweak the attributes a little bit and we change from good to real, we get a very different picture when we ask students, what's a real man? What's a real man? Well, then we revert to these 19th century masculinity attributes. We get strong, we get fast, we get active, we get quick, we get authoritative, we get a leader, and we also get sometimes violent and aggressive as a real man. So there is definitely a very strong gap between the good man, the one we, we would like to hang out with, meet or become, and then the real one who might also be a construct. I'm always interested in looking at biases because they are a natural thing, we all have biases, but our job is to be aware of them and fight against them as much as possible in order to remain objective. So I was looking at what are the role models that our children are facing. So if you look at Hollywood movies, at Marvels, at comics and literature, I would like to ask you, could you name a superhero who is a leading male character in a fiction or movie or comic, who is not a real man or hyper-masculine man. I've been thinking about it and I couldn't find any. I was wondering maybe Deadpool, but he's not the most famous superhero and um, he, he's not following typical 19th century male stereotype because he's overly chatty scattered, um, he's still physically strong and active, but I think his prowess or his superpower is more in um, the gift of the gob and his chatting actually. So that was the only one I could come out with who is not particularly hyper-masculine. The younger version of Spider-Man, particularly the cartoons, they represent a young boy, he's a bit skinny, he's a bit goofy, lanky, so again, but he's, he's still growing, so he's not a man yet, he's, a, a big, he's gonna become a man. So I'm not sure I can find a superhero in pop culture who doesn't refer to these 19th century masculinity stereotypes. Now. If we ask another question, can you name a superhero or a male character 
who is a leading male character in fiction or film or series, and who is gay, I don't think you'll find one. So we still have in pop culture a very biased definition of masculinity, a very old-fashioned definition of masculinity. I would say it's almost two millennia old. I'm thinking of the Spartan warrior figure, buffed, strong, um, not embarrassed with emotions or feelings of empathy or guilt. A fighter, someone who wants to conquer. This is still the image of the superhero, which is the image that little children are confronted with and want to emulate. If you want to read more about the image of the superhero in pop culture, there is a research paper dated from 2016 by Jennifer Volintin, and she's um, a graduate research at the University of Northern Illinois in America, and her research paper is entitled The Gendered Superhero, An Examination of Masculinities and Feminities in Modern Age DC and Marvel Comic Books. So, still a very old-fashioned way of seeing a strong lead character in movies. Old-school masculinity, the one that is a bit of a caricature with the Spartan warrior, or the one described in this movie from the 90s, Fight Club. This is a masculinity that Robert Salem argues is toxic for our society as a whole. It is toxic to young modern men, it is toxic to their partners, and it is toxic in daily uh, occurrence. So if we look at the writing of the consultant psychiatrist at the Priory Hospital in Roehampton, she's called Dr. Natasha Bijlani, and she says that it's really important as educators we are aware that stereotypes and expectations of hypermasculinity can damage men first. Because when we want men to comply and fit in a box, which is an outdated idea of what a man should be, these men are going to try and emulate it. They're going to try and comply. And the problem is they will not be able to because these people are not real. There is no such thing as a superhero. And in order to achieve or emulate this superhero, this leads to men feeling trapped. And they have also a high risk of developing a mental health issue. And this is probably, according to Dr. Natasha Bijlani, why a number of reasons, including stigma and the traditional strong male stereotype, are still prevalent in our 2023 society. We still see a man suffering from a mental illness as someone weak. And because of that, someone who is male and suffers from a mental illness will not be likely to go and reach for help or ask to see a GP or confide in a colleague or a friend. And thus they delay getting help, which increases the condition. So it becomes even more severe. And Dr. Natasha Bijlani is a psychiatrist, so she sees people who are in crisis 
people who bottled up their emotions because they wanted to fit a stereotype of what a man should be. So there are new initiatives currently to destigmatize mental health issues in men so that men can still feel manly even though they are suffering from a mental illness. And there is an initiative that is important to broadcast and it's the campaign against living miserably. And I love its acronym because it stands for calm and we all need a bit of calm and quietness in our lives, don't we? So the charity Calm works to prevent male suicide through the use of a helpline that anyone can call regarding um, male mental health. There's a web chat if um, people do not want to call on the phone and there's other support services. There is also another initiative, it's the Men's Health Forum, which is a charity that provides information and advice on men's health issues, because it's important that men know where to go if they need help. It doesn't have to be about mental health. It can be about physical health as well, but it is important to destigmatize asking for help when needed. It is quite traditional. Um, I remember talking to a lady whose father was an old school traditional man. Uh, he was born after the Second World War. He was a working class British man. And when he, he started suffering from symptoms of um, digestive issues, he refused to mention it because he felt shame and it was also a taboo. So she remembered him just tightening, tightening his belt when he had stomach issues. The problem is that he had stage four bowel cancer when he finally went to hospital and it was much too late to do any treatment and he died very quickly after getting his diagnosis. And she just acknowledged that because he believed that a man needs to always be strong and that a man shouldn't complain and a man shouldn't get help from the doctor, shouldn't voice out ailments, her dad missed out on treatment and passed very rapidly, whereas he was not elderly yet. So this is a very important health issues for men in this country. We need to destigmatize mental health, but also physical health, and we need to normalize accessing health services. We can't help people who get sick if we don't know they're sick. And the reason why they're not being seen is because they are too shy or too stuck in their old school vision of what a man should do to reach out. There is a plethora of books written about educating boys to fight against these old school stereotypes of masculinity. I'm going to name a few and tell you what their aim is throughout the whole development of the writing. So there's a title, The Boy Crisis, written by Warren Farrell and John Gray. And they are describing why boys are struggling and what we can do about it. In their book, they're arguing that there is a crisis of education. 
the reason why they think that is because they say 50% boys are less likely than girls to meet basic proficiency in reading, maths, and science. In their writing, Warren Farrell and John Gray say there's a crisis of mental health with ADHD, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder being on the rise. Boys are more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. And there is also suicide rates that are uh, six times higher uh, for boys than for girls. There is also, um, Warren Farrell and John Gray argue, a crisis of fathering with too many boys who are growing in um, monoparental families where there's absent fathers or very infrequently present fathers. And they argue that it leads to dropping out of school, drinking, taking drugs, more, uh, more risks of becoming a delinquent, ending in care or in prison. And their, their analysis is that there is, as a whole, a crisis of purpose because they believe boys don't have any new targets to reach. Um, they do not have a sense of purpose because they are not going to be warriors, they are not going to be leaders or sole breadwinners, and they are lost. They do not have a compass, and they're experiencing uh, what they called purpose, purpose void, a purpose void, with feelings associated with alienation, withdrawal, and uh, an addiction to immediate gratification. So in this book, The Boy Crisis, the authors are depicting a quite troubled, um, pessimistic vision of uh, the next generation of boys. There is another title that's quite uh, famous on um, in libraries. It's The Boy Question, written by Mark Roberts. And in The Boy Question, we raise the issue of what can we do to make boys more successful at school? So here, it's not so much societal family issues that I explore. It's more about some significant barriers to male academic success. And the author, Mark Roberts, argues that children who are boys suffer sometimes from a lack of motivation, particularly in secondary school. They have a poor attitude to learning, which translates as lower literacy levels and also a general reluctance to read for pleasure or to write at length. Again, this is publication, this is uh, research papers, but also essays. So they reflect the views of the writers. We follow a spectrum from quite a negative pessimistic outlook with the boy crisis to something a little bit more objective. We have Boys Don't Try by Matt Pinkett and Mark Roberts again, rethinking masculinity in schools. In Boys Don't Try, the authors, Pinkett and Roberts, are saying that there is, again, a lack of interest in studying amongst too many boys, that usually the ones who are excluded are boys, and that boys suffer from mental health issues, they develop sexist attitudes because they also have an inability to express emotions. And in that book, Pinkett and Roberts are arguing that that, that traditional idea of masculinity, the what I call 19th century vision of masculinity, is still having too much of a negative impact 
on boys. Um, in the book, they detail issues linked to family with disadvantage, um, poverty, but also issues relating to how we relate to one another with relationships, violence, peer pressure, and social media and pornography, which affect boys' view of maleness, masculinity. And in the book, Pinkett and Roberts offer examples of how, how to challenge these issues as a teacher and educator. At the other end of the spectrum, if we look at the literature, we have Educating Boys, Helping Our Boys to Succeed at School by Michael Irvin. And Michael Irvin is more optimistic in his outlook. I would say he's very different from the, from the authors of The Boy Crisis, John Gray and Warren Farrell. Michael Irvin sees our current generation as boys that are absolutely fine, who do not have toxic features. They don't need to be fixed. Michael Irvin argues that what needs to be fixed is the way society treats boys and girls and the way we educate them at school. So Michael Irvin is asking parents and educators and governments to change the way schools function so that teaching practices, environments are better suited to our teenagers to encourage their social development. So read the books, make your own mind, just be aware that there is definitely an agenda, sometimes very pessimistic, sometimes very optimistic, and usually the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Before we reach the topic of hypermasculinity, um, I'm just going to let you listen to the news and we'll get back to our masculinity topic straight after. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go well-being and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The UK Labour Party will drop its commitment to abolishing university tuition fees according to reports in a range of media outlets. This is seen by some as another reversal of pledges made by leader Sir Keir Starmer when he first became leader. He told BBC Radio outlets that we find ourselves in a different financial situation than when commitments were first made. But he also added that the party was looking at a number of options for reforms to higher education funding. Sakia blamed shifting economic circumstances brought about by the pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Student finance was also in the news as financial expert Martin Lewis outlined the three main changes coming in for new university starters in England in September. Mr Lewis was speaking on Good Morning Britain. So-called Plan 5 student loans come into effect in September, but will not affect those already at university. According to Mr Lewis, finance is swinging further away from taxpayer funding and more towards the individual. 
Those starting uni in September will start repaying student loans once they reach a salary of £25,000 per year, lower than the current threshold. Currently, those with student loans cease repayments after 30 years, even if the debt is uncleared. However, new students will have to pay for 40 years or until the debt is cleared, whichever comes first. This means that graduates could end up repaying loans for their entire working life. In more positive news, the interest on these loans will be lowered from inflation plus 3% to just inflation. In real terms, this means no additional interest. Mr Lewis went on to give detailed examples stating that currently the taxpayer pays around 44 pence in the pound towards funding and the student pays 56 pence on average. Under the new system, the state will pay 19 pence in the pound and the student 81 pence on average. Statistically, 53% of those in receipt of a student loan are currently likely to pay it off in full. Projections, however, indicate that those in the new system, only 23% are likely to pay off their loans. Mr Lewis ended by saying that the new system effectively moved payment for higher education from the taxpayer to the student and could be seen as amounting to a graduate tax of 9% on earnings above £25,000 a year. In Wales, schools are being urged to review their uniform to make it cheaper for families according to a report on the BBC website. However, the report also says that the Welsh Government has stopped short of calling for school logos on clothes to be ditched, instead saying they should not be compulsory. Education Minister Jeremy Miles said families should be told about changes before the end of term, but head teachers said they were being asked to consider change at what is already a busy time of year. The request came after a consultation which asked for views on how the uniform cost burden could be eased for families struggling with the cost of living. Families on lower incomes can apply for a Welsh Government grant of up to £300 to help with the cost of uniform, but this hasn't always eased the worry for parents. TES magazine reports on comments made by Shadow Education Secretary Bridget Philipson at last weekend's NAHT conference. In a message to Head, she said Labour will ensure pupils are taught by specialist teachers in each subject. She commented that schools are facing a perfect storm in recruitment and retention in the teaching workforce and that this was forcing more and more schools to rely on non-expert teachers. The Labour Party analysis found that more than one in four physics lessons in the past year has been taught by a non-expert teacher, whilst one in ten maths lessons are taught by a non-expert. It also said research indicated that some teachers were delivering lessons in subjects where they had no relevant post-A-level qualification, including two in three computing teachers and one in four design and technology teachers. The comments did not include any clear detail of how the party plans to tackle individual subject shortages. Staying with the recruitment theme, ITV News posed the question, do Britain schools need more male teachers? after research showed that around one quarter of schools in England don't have a male classroom teacher. Some experts argue that it means young people could miss out on having male role models, although others say it's the quality of the teaching that is important, not the gender of the teacher. The article prompted many to comment that during a recruitment crisis, it was inappropriate to focus on gender rather than skill. This was backed up to an extent by a Channel 4 news piece that focused on National Education Union comments that teachers in England are leaving in droves. The report focused on numbers in the profession after the Department for Education asserted that there are more teachers now than over a decade ago, although they did acknowledge that the need has also grown. 
the NEU raised the concern that within five years of qualifying, one in three teachers leave the profession. These are figures based on those published by the DfE. This has been a pattern for over a decade. The failure to meet recruitment targets has created further gaps in the workforce. Between 2010 and 2021, vacancies in schools have almost trebled for both full and part-time posts. The programme also featured comparisons of class sizes in England, Scotland and Wales. Smaller class sizes are often seen as a way to reduce workload and therefore could make the profession more attractive. The research shows that Scotland has the lowest average class size amongst the home nations, but the UK compares unfavourably with class sizes internationally, the UK having class sizes above average when compared to Greece, South Korea and Germany. The feature highlights the issue of workload and recruitment as another core aspect of industrial action. Finally, to mark the coronation of King Charles III, the DfE announced that it was joining forces with the Eden Project to send thousands of packets of wildflower seeds to primary schools across the country. In an initiative designed to mark the event as well as help children learn about biodiversity, around 40 rugby pitch-sized meadows could be created. The plan was met with enthusiasm by some, although many have criticised the cost of this at a time when funding for schools is so hotly debated. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about revision. Lots of our young people are turning to social media for advice and the hashtag study tips is full on trending. Get me using buzzwords. I am so down with the kids. Anyway, this could be a secret weapon that you could untap simply by being a devoted listener and not skipping past me on Podbean. We all know there are millions of factors that come into play, like sleep, nutrition, hydration, actually being in school and actively participating, but that doesn't matter on social media. And let's face it, any revision beats no revision. So here is what I've found. Read it 10 times, say it 10 times, write it twice. No research quoted, no posh name, just a good idea that our kids are listening to because it isn't being said by their teacher. Yet. Another I found was use flashcards. I mean, why have no teachers ever thought of that? It's okay though, now social media is telling our young people to do it, they will. Just provide cards, writing utensils and a link. One of my favourites, give yourself no other option. Remove all distractions. Switch your phone off and put it in a room. You have no other option but to be incredibly bored or study. Yes, this is a technique that is trending. There are loads of good tips out there, all of which we clearly have never tried to use with our pupils. Let me finish with something nobody has ever thought of. Make a revision calendar. Mind blown. We could have been recommending this for years. There are even newly developed methods with catchy titles like the 2357. No, it's not a new Netflix series. You count backwards from the night before the exam, two days, three days, five days, and seven days, and they are your revision sessions. All of these tips and more have only just been invented, so we seriously need to encourage our young people to get on social media and learn how to revise in the countdown to exam time. As always, if you have a tech question or any revision tips, why not get in touch at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you for listening to the news, dear listeners. Um, I found it really interesting to see there was a, a survey and a talk about the importance of having male teachers in schools. We're talking about masculinity and education today. And I have to say that 
diversity is always very, very important. Sadly, from 76 to 78% of teachers are women in uh, the UK, a very big majority. So we do not have equality um, in that regard. We need more male teachers. It's good for staff. It's good for uh, pay. Pay increases when there's more uh, male, sadly. And also it's good for students. We want more diversity. <clears throat> we also want uh, non-binary teachers. We want teachers who have disabilities. We want teachers who are um, LGBTQ, we want teachers who are from all over the world because when we are more diverse, we're more inclusive and we are more tolerant as a society. So yes, definitely, I believe that having male teachers is good. It encourages children to consider the profession. We have a teacher retention crisis. Um, but we do not have to um, do that alone. We also need to change the way we value uh, masculinity and what it means. What is hypermasculinity, or as we call it, toxic masculinity? Well, it is an attitude or a set of social guidelines stereotypically associated with manliness that often have a negative impact on men, on women, and children and society in general. And the term toxic masculinity doesn't mean that being man is inherently bad. It just means that there's a vision of hypermasculinity that is damaging. What is this vision? Well, and what does it do in schools? Well, I'll I'll give you a few examples. Hypermasculinity looks like this in a school. It looks like homophobia and transphobia. It looks like sexual abuse against other peers and teachers. It looks like sexual harassment online, sharing pornographic pictures or coercing someone to share pornographic pictures. Hypermasculinity also can look like verbal abuse, um, online harassment. Hypermasculinity can also lead to bullying. It leads to physical violence, intolerance, misogyny and sexual bullying. And who are the victims? Well, the, the perpetrators are the first victims and then the boys and the girls who are um, also uh, involved and their parents, their teachers and the whole of society. If we have schools where there is sexual harassment and online sexual bullying, we are not gonna have children who are able to learn because they'll be traumatized and they will not be happy individuals. Does testosterone play a part in uh, these hypermasculine traits that we are uh, denouncing? Um, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, violence? Well, testosterone does not explain why hypermasculinity is predominant and detrimental. There has been some studies that linked the absence of testosterone with lower levels of aggressive behavior. This has been studied when there's a case of castration or uh, replacement, but the evidence doesn't show that it is testosterone that drives aggression in some species. We think it is 
lacking the research to prove that testosterone increases aggression and violence and misogyny, etc., because we don't have enough studies that have pharmacologically manipulated testosterone concentrations to prove that testosterone is a direct link. So, so far, we lack pragmatic evidence and scientifically based evidence. It, it appears that testosterone, when it's in high concentration, can lead to aggressive behavior. But what we notice when we look at the rates of femicides and domestic violence is that it is more often caused by a social construct than by a biological event. Mental health of boys and men is a big issue currently, and we should talk more about it. According to recent data from the Office for National Statistics, ONS, suicide is the leading cause of death for men aged 20 to 49 in the UK. So it's not car crashes, it's not drugs, it's not COVID, it's suicide. In 2019, 4,303 men took their own lives, and that was 75% of all suicides. So men are at high risk of dying of suicide in the country. The health charity Mind found that 59% of men in the UK have experienced a mental health problem, such as depression or anxiety. So if you look at 10 men in the street, more than five of them will have experienced mental health issues, but only a third of them will have asked for help to a medical professional. So men are less likely to ask for help, they are less likely to see a professional, and they are less likely to ask um, their peers or their family and kins to help. Men are also more likely to go missing, to sleep rough, to become dependent on alcohol and use drugs frequently. This data is showing one thing. If we do not address hypermasculinity or toxic masculinity in school, it will still have negative impact on adult population as a whole. Now, the people we have in school, the students we have in schools are a tricky generation. They are the iPhone babies. They have never lived without a phone less than four meters away from them. When they were little, they would watch Peppa Pigs on their phones to calm down in the queue at the GP or out and about. Now they're exposed to social media. Let's remember that the youngest age when a boy is watching pornographic material in the UK is from the age of nine. From the age of nine to 11. From nine to 11, children are exposed to toxic visions of sexuality with hypermasculinity at its core. We do not know the long-term side effects of this early exposure to toxic content. As parents and educators, we have to understand that we cannot protect our children from these social media, the internet, and pornographic content, the way some previous generations could have been protected. So it is our duty to educate our children about sex in a positive way. We can also maybe control access to phones, but 
remember, other children have phones. So whatever we do, our children will be exposed to content that is detrimental for their uh, self-expression and their body positivity. What The only thing we can do is try to influence them in a positive way and show them that there's alternative ways of living. Awareness is essential for parents first. We need to be aware of what goes on in our children's minds and in their, that generation, the iPhone babies, as I call them. The only way we can help our children is through mindfulness. We need to be able to teach our children how to perceive emotions. When our child is sad, we need to ask them, are you sad? Why do you think you're sad? What happened? What made you sad? We need to encourage them to name the feeling they're experiencing. And if they're angry, we need to also say, are you angry today? What do you think made you angry? What can I do to help you? How can we teach our children to regulate their emotion? Being aware, being mindful, fosters very important skills that were not the hyper-masculinity, the toxic, prejudiced attributes that we associated to 19th century manhood. Mindfulness fosters compassion, self-compassion, empathy and acceptance. If we work on regulating our emotions through mindfulness, we can help our boys and our girls to work on tolerance. And these values are critical in order to make strong individuals with healthy self-esteem who are going to gravitate towards healthy friendships and relationships. Having a dictionary of emotion would be the first step as an educator and as a parent. What are the solutions to tackle this hyper-masculinity that our children are exposed to via very different outlets such as social media, peers, movies, fiction? How can we help them? Well, first, we need to raise awareness. They need to be aware that there is such a thing as toxic masculinity or hyper-masculinity and that it is a biased way of seeing manhood. We need to help them challenge gender norms. If your child likes glitter and pink, do not put the child down. Let them self-explore, discover what they like. They're likely to be completely different two years down the road. Remember how a five-year-old is, their taste, their choice of cartoons. Ten years down the line, they'll be very different. Let your child experiment and don't be judgmental. Allow self-expression and exploration of self and also address toxic masculinity in the media. For instance, if you watch a superhero movie with your child or if you show a movie to your students, give them the language they need, the vocabulary, to name the emotions and also pinpoint at the fact that violence is constantly represented in fiction. Whereas in our daily lives, it doesn't. Not so much. There are very interesting books if you're interested in the concept of toxic masculinity. And one is entitled The Man They Wanted Me To Be. Toxic Masculinity and a Crisis of Our Own Making. It was written by Jared Yates Sexton. And um, 
it is about the relation between toxic masculinity and white supremacy in America. He uses, uh, Jared Sexton uses a very good example. He was a journalist, so he spent a lot of time following Trump at rallies. And uh, because he's a working class white American, he could really um, dive deep into the culture. And he realized that it was a culture that was really rooted in racism. There was, for example, the sort of banners that represent misogyny at its worst. Um, there was a Trump banner, a Trump rally banner that said, Hillary sucks, but not like Monica. So these sorts of jokey, bantery, sexist, misogynist jokes are a perfect example of the link between white supremacy and toxic masculinity, where women are always belittled, mocked, and um, constantly downtrodden. He explains that um, it's a misogynistic subculture, which is um, broadcast in many movies, and that his family members, his friends, his cousins, his father, were prisoners of that box, that toxic masculinity, and that they were, in the end, trapped and felt fragile, and they transmuted that sadness or that feeling of frustration into anger, and they aimed their anger at anyone else, women, Native Americans, black people, African Americans, foreigners, and they used their anger and they translated it, committing lots of crimes, such as harassment, physical and emotional abuse, rape, domestic violence, and even murder and shootings. So this masculinity that is biased and stereotyped has lethal consequences when it's left to fester. And the first victim is often the person who is harboring these feelings. Um, Jared Sexton explained that his father was also someone who died very young because he didn't access health services when he needed to, and someone who had a very difficult life because he was never in tune with his emotion. Again, emotional awareness is something that we need to develop as a skill it should become a symbol of masculinity. Now, there's the same issues in many countries. Toxic masculinity is also linked to uh, some extreme version of Islam. When you see Afghanistan with the Taliban and their very dogmatic view of religion, it's translated as an educational war against women in, De in December 2022, when women and girls were barred from attending schools, primary school, uh, all the way to university in Afghanistan. So different country, different, different people, same issue that toxic way, hyper-masculine way that is detrimental to all. If you're interested in the term toxic masculinity, but you disagree with the connotation, there's an interesting TED talk by Reese McKinney, who is uh, an American um, uh, university um, student, and he, he said, stop calling toxic masculinity toxic masculinity, and just um, describe it as a hyper-masculinity. Because according to him, masculinity is not toxic. 
it's when we think that violence equals masculinity, that we are toxic. Violence and self-destruction is often seen as um, part of these male attributes. And the only way we can stop violence and self-destruction is by improving emotional intelligence. What is emotional intelligence? Well, it's just being able to understand the emotions you're experiencing. But it doesn't stop there, because once you understand your emotions, you need to be able to control them and manage them. By controlling, we do not mean bottle them up, ignore them, and let them fester. When we are emotionally equipped and intelligent, we can recognize and influence our emotions in order to transform them into tools in a constructive way. And um, emotional intelligence is only operational if we can also recognize emotions of others and help others with their emotions. The term emotional intelligence is already 40 years old. It was coined in 1990 by researchers John Mayer and Peter Salovey, but now it's becoming even more famous because the psychologist Daniel Goldman talked about it a lot. Who is Daniel Goldman? Daniel Goldman is an American writer and sociologist. He was born on March 7th, 1946. So he's a baby boomer. And Mr. Goldman is an acclaimed author, journalist. He used to write a column in the New York Times for over 12 years, where he focused on brain and behavioral science. So his most famous book is entitled, as I mentioned, Emotional Intelligence. And it's been a bestseller. You can find it translated in many languages. And we need to understand that emotional intelligence is not something we should just study when we are at university or when we join the corporate world. We should teach emotional intelligence at school. The only way to help boys to get rid of these hyper-masculine traits that have been broadcast and emphasized and promoted for the last 2,000 years the only way we can help them is to give them training on emotional intelligence. We need to teach all our students from a very young age how to read emotions on people's faces. Um, I'm thinking we could use flashcards to help them. That would be great for everybody, not just for neurodivergent students, by the way. We could encourage students to write a diary and the topic of each day would be what sort of event happened to me and how did I feel when it happened to me? And how did I react? And the aim would be to try and influence the way we react so that we are more constructive and we avoid conflict. That would be the first step towards regulating our emotions. Then we could go on to voicing our opinion in constructive ways, which is a tool we need in our professional life, in our relationships, in our adult life, and in our personal relationships. And then later on, we would practice avoiding situations that end in conflict by being able to address issues in a calm manner, channeling violence also and anger, which are natural human emotions, but before they overtake us, we should be able to channel them through sports or physical activity. 
And I do believe it's really important to promote physical activity every day at school because it helps regulating emotions. And I brought my son this way when I, when he was little. I noticed if we didn't get out of the house before 9.30 in the morning, he would just climb up the walls. So we had a very strict routine where we would be out and about around 9 a.m. every morning when he was little, and we would go in the park. And being in the fresh air in nature was cathartic and therapeutic. And I do think the school routine, the school day, is not conducive of the regulation of emotions for boys and many girls as well. We should all have access to nature. We should all have access to um, fresh air and exercise as a daily routine. Five components have been um, described in emotional intelligence. First, we have self-awareness. It's being able to understand the mood we're in and the emotion, but also how they affect other people around us. We, we shouldn't just be having um, a, run, a running dictation of what we're feeling unless we understand that it has an effect on other people around us. Then, after being aware, we need to be regulating. So, controlling impulses and moods, being able to control emotions so that they don't become toxic. Having internal intrinsic motivation, and that's really important, particularly for uh, children, is being driven, but also um, being disciplined enough. Not needing external motivation for everything. This side of emotional intelligence that we really talk about a lot is also empathy. Empathy is part, partly being self-aware and it's a being able to understand what motivates others and the best image is being able to walk in other people's shoes. And finally, the last part of emotional intelligence is social skills, being able to manage relationships and build networks. To bring up healthy boys in a society that is still very sexist and very unequal, we need to be aware of our child's emotion. We need to see emotions as an opportunity for connection and teaching. We need to listen and validate feelings. Yes, you're angry. I understand your anger. What can we do about it? We need to teach them to label their emotions. I'm angry because it's really important that your child manages to say, I'm angry today because this happened. Because when he, once he can label it, he has enough distance to now regulate it. He steps to the side, looks back on his behavior, and is able to do something about it. And we can help our children problem solve with limits. It is really important that we also sharpen the critical minds of our children, boys and girls, so that they can critically assess the world they live in. We want our children to be able to unpack conversations they have with others, to understand who's got their good interests at heart and who doesn't. But also, we need to let our children make mistakes because this is how we experience, we get experience and we evolve. Toxic violence 
often stems from children who've been victims of child abuse and neglect. So this hyper-masculinity that Jared Sexton was describing in his book, um, the image of the box his father was locked in and couldn't get out of, it really is perpetrated by families where we cultivate silence, we avoid talking about issues, we are um, sometimes condoning domestic violence and physical abuse. So it is really important that we help children who are caught in the vicious circle of poverty and abuse and neglect. Because we know that uh, violence and frontal lobe uh, deformities or accidents are connected. There has been case studies in psychology backed since 1835 that report an onset of antisocial personality traits with frontal lobe injury. And we also know that when children are uh, affected by fetal alcohol syndrome, their frontal lobe is not developing properly. So there is an association between a frontal lobe dysfunction and increased aggressive and antisocial behavior. So we need to be really targeting families where children are at risk of neglect so that they do not go on to develop these sort of injuries to their psyche or to their brain and avoid the early onset of antisocial personality and violence. This is a way to target criminal behavior bef before it's actually um, happened. I'm going to give you the example of what goes on in New Zealand. New Zealand is a developed country. New Zealand had a female prime minister, and yet one in three women in New Zealand will be victim of male violence. New Zealand has the highest rate of domestic violence in, New in the world compared to other OECD countries, so countries in the same um, economical background. So the OECD is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and it contains 38 member countries. It was founded in 1961, and it, its purpose is to stimulate economic progress and world trade. So we can see that in developed nations, where people have access to education and healthcare, there is still too much male violence. As I said earlier, we cannot shelter our children from the stereotypes of male um, hypermasculinity. There is sexualization and erotization of violence in mass media. Remember this Dolce Gabbana campaign in 2011 that um, with models mimicking the postures of a gang rape. It is predominant in culture where we show violence, we show shootings, we show um, domestic violence, and we glamorize it. So this is something we cannot yet stop, but we need to teach our children to be able to look through it and see the manipulation. It is important to work on critical thinking. For instance, the Italian fashion company Relish was criticized a lot for uh, showing pictures of Rio de Janeiro police officers uh, groping models um, it was a billboard campaign in, in Italy for summer, spring-summer clothing 2009. So this is how we normalize 
um, domestic violence and violence against women. It's that misogyny that's pervading all aspects of mass pop culture. If we want to teach boys, we need to recognize all the things that they're exposed to, but we also need to be aware of the difficulties they encounter. And um, as you know, I teach MFL, so Modern Foreign Languages, and there's been a lot of literature written on the fact that MFL is not a subject that is very popular with boys. Boys' performance and boys' motivation in learning foreign languages has always been historically a bit shaky. We have more girls who take languages, and um, there's been lots of research on this. Um, I've been reading the Barry Jones archive on the Association for Learning Languages website. And he said that in relation to MFL, boys' enthusiasm for the subject was really strong in the early years, when they're 11 to 12, in year seven and eight. And then it slowly becomes less, uh, and it, the children do not, choose it as an option. So there's many reasons why, and um, it's been studied. A lot of boys feel like they are not given the choice and they have to study a language, and this may foster resentment. Um, the best way, I believe, to help boys fight against this hyper-masculinity, this toxic masculinity that has an impact on their learning is to ask them what they want to do at school and to let them choose their options. I strongly believe we need to let students choose from a certain number of options so that they can really embrace a subject and then do well in it. Um, the issue with MFL is that you need intrinsic discipline and it's sometimes hard to have the maturity in boys' development to, to get to that stage. Um, it's also not um something that is valued you don't need to speak a language to go to university so boys think about targets and how to achieve them and if they aim for university they will think that a language is maybe not necessary and also we have the issue of when there's an option that's outnumbered with by girls boys will not willingly want to choose that option and when there is an outnumbering of boys in a subject, um, this they also tend to have some specific behavior issues. They might be a bit louder and more difficult to manage or more demanding of attention, which also triggers um, relationship issues in the classroom. So boys seem to find um, subjects that they enjoy and these subjects are usually the, the subjects they find that they succeed at. They find it maybe easier than other subjects. Boys will tend to choose subjects where there is social admiration for. So if they know that you're more likely to get a job that is well paid, if you do STEM studies, such as maths, physics, and computing, they will go for that subject, even though they also like languages and other subjects. Boys also tend to choose subjects that they think are more fun, more attractive. They also see the long-term benefits to learning this subject. Uh, if there's role models who are successful in this subject, they're more likely to take this subject. And obviously, MFL is a very feminized profession. There's more um, 
more women definitely studying languages. So this is uh, a vicious circle. There's less male teachers, so there's maybe less role models that encourage boys to take this option. And boys will also choose a subject that is marked uh, or perceived as marked more fairly. And it is true that the exams for languages have a tendency to mark really harshly, particularly the French one in my experience and in my opinion. The MFL lesson is attractive to boys if it's fast-paced, if there's a variety of activities, a little bit of physical activity involved, and if there's elements of competition and fun. So this can explain why it's still not a very popular subject for boys in schools, saying that some of my most successful and favorite students are boys. So we can definitely find boys who enjoy MFL. Are they going to choose it as an option for A-levels? That's a different story that I don't have time to explore today. Now, I briefly went through the notion of the outdated aspect of masculinity because it's still majorly influenced by old-fashioned principles that stem from mass culture, pop culture, movies, and fiction. I didn't have time to go into uh, role models as such. This would be another title for another uh, podcast, but I hope I gave you some clues as to how hypermasculinity influences boys' outlook and how we can fight against the toxicity of these outdated representation of manhood. I'm keen to hear your views on the issue of masculinity and toxic masculinity or hypermasculinity. Please contact me on uh, Twitter at ProfProfMFL to share your views. I'm going to let you listen to the news one more time. Thank you, dear listeners. This program has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go well-being and mental health program will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The UK Labour Party will drop its commitment to abolishing university tuition fees according to reports in a range of media outlets. This is seen by some as another reversal of pledges made by leader Sir Keir Starmer when he first became leader. He told BBC Radio outlets that we find ourselves in a different financial situation than when commitments were first made. But he also added that the party was looking at a number of options for reforms to higher education funding. Sakia blamed shifting economic circumstances brought about by the pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Student finance was also in the news as financial expert Martin Lewis outlined the three main changes coming in for new university starters in England in September. Mr Lewis was speaking on Good Morning Britain. So-called Plan 5 student loans come into effect in September, but will not affect those already at university. According to Mr Lewis, finance is swinging further away from taxpayer funding and more towards the individual. 
Those starting uni in September will start repaying student loans once they reach a salary of £25,000 per year, lower than the current threshold. Currently, those with student loans cease repayments after 30 years, even if the debt is uncleared. However, new students will have to pay for 40 years or until the debt is cleared, whichever comes first. This means that graduates could end up repaying loans for their entire working life. In more positive news, the interest on these loans will be lowered from inflation plus 3% to just inflation. In real terms, this means no additional interest. Mr Lewis went on to give detailed examples stating that currently, the taxpayer pays around 44 pence in the pound towards funding and the student pays 56 pence on average. Under the new system, the state will pay 19 pence in the pound and the student 81 pence on average. Statistically, 53% of those in receipt of a student loan are currently likely to pay it off in full. Projections, however, indicate that those in the new system, only 23% are likely to pay off their loans. Mr Lewis ended by saying that the new system effectively moved payment for higher education from the taxpayer to the student and could be seen as amounting to a graduate tax of 9% on earnings above £25,000 a year. In Wales, schools are being urged to review their uniform to make it cheaper for families according to a report on the BBC website. However, the report also says that the Welsh Government has stopped short of calling for school logos on clothes to be ditched, instead saying they should not be compulsory. Education Minister Jeremy Miles said families should be told about changes before the end of term, but head teachers said they were being asked to consider change at what is already a busy time of year. The request came after a consultation which asked for views on how the uniform cost burden could be eased for families struggling with the cost of living. Families on lower incomes can apply for a Welsh Government grant of up to £300 to help with the cost of uniform, but this hasn't always eased the worry for parents. TES magazine reports on comments made by Shadow Education Secretary Bridget Philipson at last weekend's NAHT conference. In a message to Head, she said Labour will ensure pupils are taught by specialist teachers in each subject. She commented that schools are facing a perfect storm in recruitment and retention in the teaching workforce and that this was forcing more and more schools to rely on non-expert teachers. The Labour Party analysis found that more than one in four physics lessons in the past year has been taught by a non-expert teacher, whilst one in ten maths lessons are taught by a non-expert. It also said research indicated that some teachers were delivering lessons in subjects where they had no relevant post-A-level qualification, including two in three computing teachers and one in four design and technology teachers. The comments did not include any clear detail of how the party plans to tackle individual subject shortages. Staying with the recruitment theme, ITV News posed the question, do Britain schools need more male teachers? after research showed that around one quarter of schools in England don't have a male classroom teacher. Some experts argue that it means young people could miss out on having male role models, although others say it's the quality of the teaching that is important, not the gender of the teacher. The article prompted many to comment that during a recruitment crisis, it was inappropriate to focus on gender rather than skill. This was backed up to an extent by a Channel 4 news piece that focused on National Education Union comments that teachers in England are leaving in droves. The report focused on numbers in the profession after the Department for Education asserted that there are more teachers now than over a decade ago, although they did acknowledge that the need has also grown. 
The NEU raised the concern that within five years of qualifying, one in three teachers leave the profession. These are figures based on those published by the DfE. This has been a pattern for over a decade. The failure to meet recruitment targets has created further gaps in the workforce. Between 2010 and 2021, vacancies in schools have almost trebled for both full and part-time posts. The programme also featured comparisons of class sizes in England, Scotland and Wales. Smaller class sizes are often seen as a way to reduce workload and therefore could make the profession more attractive. The research shows that Scotland has the lowest average class size amongst the home nations, but the UK compares unfavourably with class sizes internationally, the UK having class sizes above average when compared to Greece, South Korea and Germany. The feature highlights the issue of workload and recruitment as another core aspect of industrial action. Finally, to mark the coronation of King Charles III, the DfE announced that it was joining forces with the Eden Project to send thousands of packets of wildflower seeds to primary schools across the country. In an initiative designed to mark the event as well as help children learn about biodiversity, around 40 rugby pitch sized meadows could be created. The plan was met with enthusiasm by some, although many have criticised the cost of this at a time when funding for schools is so hotly debated. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about revision. Lots of our young people are turning to social media for advice and the hashtag study tips is full on trending. Get me using buzzwords. I am so down with the kids. Anyway, this could be a secret weapon that you could untap simply by being a devoted listener and not skipping past me on Podbean. We all know there are millions of factors that come into play, like sleep, nutrition, hydration, actually being in school and actively participating, but that doesn't matter on social media. And let's face it, any revision beats no revision. So here is what I've found. Read it 10 times, say it 10 times, write it twice. No research quoted, no posh name, just a good idea that our kids are listening to because it isn't being said by their teacher, yet. Another I found was use flashcards. I mean, why have no teachers ever thought of that? It's okay though, now social media is telling our young people to do it, they will. Just provide cards, writing utensils and a link. One of my favourites, give yourself no other option. Remove all distractions. Switch your phone off and put it in another room. You have no other option but to be incredibly bored or study. Yes, this is a technique that is trending. There are loads of good tips out there, all of which we clearly have never tried to use with our pupils. Let me finish with something nobody has ever thought of. Make a revision calendar. Mind blown. We could have been recommending this for years. There are even newly developed methods with catchy titles like the 2357. No, it's not a new Netflix series. You count backwards from the night before the exam. Two days, three days, five days, and seven days, and they are your revision sessions. All of these tips and more have only just been invented, so we seriously need to encourage our young people to get on social media and learn how to revise in the countdown to exam time. As always, if you have a tech question or any revision tips, why not get in touch at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Dear listeners, thank you for listening to the news. So just as a quick summary, today we discussed the 
topic of masculinity in education, we uh, examined the old-fashioned stereotype vision of masculinity, and we broached the subject of hypermasculinity, which is also known as toxic masculinity. The summary of what we advise educators to do in order to reduce the crisis regarding toxic masculinity effect and in schools is to bring up healthy boys and how do we achieve this we would achieve that by teaching our students and our children to be aware of their emotions to see emotions as an opportunity for connection and teaching to listen and validate feelings to label emotions and to problem solve when we experience um, emotions so this is relative to emotional intelligence and we need to have empathetic children who are able to self-regulate who are self-aware internally motivated to succeed are empathetic and have good positive social skills the aim is to bring up a generation of people who can avoid conflict by using tolerant approaches of dialogue via tolerance i hope you enjoyed the podcast Thank you so much for spending your afternoon in my company. I wish you a lovely week. Thank you.